Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Rob from Cigar Store Idiots. You may be asking yourself what Moonwalker Delta 8 is. Moonwalker is the industry leader in Delta 8 THC products, an emerging category pushing the boundaries of the cannabis plant. By expertly combining terpenes with complementary flavors, Moonwalker represents the absolute pinnacle of Delta 8 THC products, all engineered for pure bliss and joy. If you have any questions or concerns about the legality of Delta 8, please feel free to visit moonwalker.com backslash pages backslash legal. Hello, world, and welcome to another episode of Cigar Store Idiots. I am Rob, and you saw Hello, Governor. I am Aldo. That's great. We had Sam Elliott in the in studio that studio. Earlier. It's going to be, y'all, we apologize because at any time he may make an appearance. You should definitely wait for a future episode where we're going to have <laughs> Sam Elliott sit in and uh, talk about some cryptid. <laughs> see, I told you. <laughs> or beef. It's what for dinner. So yeah, y'all, y'all hang out for that. Thank That's you, Mr. Elliot. You can just have a seat over there. Have in the a good green day. Room. So yeah, go right ahead. There's some uh, some charcuterie boards in there for you to. <laughs> Plenty of beef on there for you. So. <laughs> some alcoholic beverages from the double douche. <laughs> so, so we're off the rails. Man, and we thirty it, seconds dude, in, dude. It is uh, it is going to be one of those mornings. So we're getting closer to Christmas, and. Uh, I still got things I got to pick up, so I'm that's getting where I'm nervous. Headed. Yeah, that's where I'm headed after this. I got to go last minute. Uh, I got two gifts I got to get, and uh, I'll be done. But, man, it's just it's crazy. I love how Brittany's like, I can guarantee or I can count on you. You're going to get these things for me. You can count. I was like, you can count on me. I got it. I got it. I got it. And that was a week ago, and was, I just now remembered it because me <laughs> started talking about Christmas, so... I'm going to leave here and go do that. I'm going to write a, good idea. a Starbucks symbol in the palm of my hand. Oh, man. <laughs> so it's kind of, yeah. And then everybody's like, oh, and then even you yesterday, you couldn't get sausage at Kroger? There is no sausage in Rome, Georgia. That's scary. And everybody's like, well, man, I got them too. Well, here's the thing. How are you going to make sausage balls? Now, they do have, here's, but here's, I will go. I'm kind of all over the place. I had two cups of coffee. So if you you're get fine. The, you're fine. if you get coffee, I want them dispensers, <laughs> and you go the next size up, you get more caffeine, and then you just stop it. Oh, really? Yeah. And I realized, no shit. I realized, like at the gas station, a medium's like ten cents. They, that's how they get you. It's only ten cents more for a large. Yeah. 
But if you take, you can fit what they put in a large cup in a medium cup. Yeah, you can. So what I do is I'll get a medium cup, and then I'll say that it's filling up a large, mm-hmm. and then I'll watch it, and then when it gets close, hit the cancel. So you don't get as much hot water. You get straight. I mean, it's like eating the beans. You I mean, got I'm, I'm like, it's It can't get up and walk by itself, and you don't have to chew it when you drink it. But it may talk back to you. Yeah. <laughs> it may slap you in the face. Wake up. You know, uh, remember when we first, like, you turned 21 and you could drink, and, of course, the only place to go drink around here in Rome when we were 21 was Applebee's. That was it. And we all thought we were hot shit drinking a Brutus, like the big old tall beer. Well, you can pour that motherfucker in a regular mug. We're just a bunch of dummies. <laughs> it's like, you got me. Yep. You got me. Like, I see what you did. For thousands of dollars, you got me. <laughs> I think what's hilarious is that we were both in the building when the lady got on the horse, and we didn't know each other were in the building. Yeah. <laughs> That was the best thing. That was man. That may have been the best night of my life. And that life. was the only thing she had to look forward to. Every night was going to get drunk at Applebee's and they banner from the restaurant. And she stood she out there. She sounded like Sam Elliott. She yes, she did. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna ride this horse. <laughs> she got up there. <laughs> I'm gonna ride this horse at Yellowstone <laughs> or Tombstone. Right, right <laughs> before that, she reached down and grabbed my. Goddamn! If she had a mustache, she looked like Sam Elliott. Yeah, she if did. You to be she, honest, she looks like she's been on a cattle driver too. <laughs> <laughs> oh oh my god dude I, that yeah I, that brings back some memories some that i'd like to forget i was gonna say there's no way what's funny is we kind of back then we kind of our orbits kind of touched each other every once in a while yeah and it was so funny we would always find ourselves in the most fucked up situation this is the <laughs> look there's rock yeah <laughs> how did you get <laughs> how are we not in jail yeah yeah exactly that was the other thing but now I, I I feel like if I don't get any sausage balls for Christmas, my holidays sucked because I didn't even get any pecan pie at Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. I'm gonna get my wife to make you a. a I was pretty upset about it. Caramel pecan pie because she always makes one for Christmas for my brother-in-law, but he's gonna be in New York, so well, hello, brother. <laughs> so I'll Sister. bring it to you. Yeah, um, you're gonna need a shot of insulin after you have a slice. I'll eat it, and my feet will. <laughs> Swell up. It'll be like the witch's feet on the Wizard of Oz when she takes his shoes off and they just roll up under the house. That's going to that's gonna be how hard the diabetes hits me. Yes. Diabetes. Just for dinner. Diabetes. <laughs> I take 12 shots a day. Damn. I'm not making fun of people with diabetes. My, it runs in my family. So uh, hopefully um, your wife's pie will not send me into immediate diabetic coma. Yeah. It's coming. I mean, it's coming. So, But... Uh, no, like for sausage balls, my mom don't listen to this. And if you do, mom, I apologize. Maybe We're sorry. Maybe this will be uh maybe this will be how we break the news to you. So last Christmas she made sausage balls and her sausage balls are to die for. My mother in her old age thought it would be a good idea to put said sausage balls in a glass container and stick it in the oven. They may have been the consistency of Rocky Mountain oysters. <laughs> no. Ooh. You just taught me how to want to eat sausage balls for the rest hey, of my life. I reached over there and grabbed like three or four in a handful. And like, they melted hand. in your hand? No, and I kind of looked at them. I'm like, well, they're kind of, did she undercook them? And I just popped one in my mouth, and I was like, nope. It's like a cat trying to lick its ass. Like, <laughs> I looked at my brother, and I was like, <laughs> Don't cut eat that it. shit out. <laughs> Hell, I dated, I probably told this story many times. I dated a girl one time, and um, we got into an argument, and I didn't go to Thanksgiving dinner with her. Uh, for whatever reason, because it seems like she and I always were fighting about something. And uh, I didn't go, 
And lucky me, I didn't go because her grandmother, who was going through like the Alzheimer's dementia, dementia. thing, she cooked the dressing with uh, with spoiled eggs. They were oh, bad eggs, and everybody got poisoned. Sick. The whole fucking family, everybody was sick we like, for like two weeks. I was like, "That's called karma." That's what that's called. I told you not to argue with yeah. me. You got anything else you want to say to me? <laughs> Grandma about killed everybody. That's why we just like we just Griswolds. covered. Did you know that Thanksgiving was the most murderous uh, holiday of the season? I don't. I don't doubt it. It's true. I, I, yeah, we did an episode with James the other day, and I was like, "Shit, Thanksgiving is the most murderous holiday there is." I'm gonna tell you something though. If y'all made it through Thanksgiving, pat yourself on the back. You did. You made it. When we were growing up, there wasn't that internet. Yeah. We got into the most knockdown, slobber knocking, dog cussed fights with our family <laughs> over the holiday between Thanksgiving and Christmas. I mean, it the knives came out, <laughs> and I mean, it was horrible. I don't know how me and my brother really liked the holidays, to be honest with you. Yeah. Many a times, either Santa Claus was going to get shot out of the air, um, he was going to put us out on the side of the road between our house and my grandparents' house, which is only three miles. We could have made it one way or the other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or, I'm going to turn this car around. Why does everybody give that one uncle that didn't need to drink ever All a fucking that. bottle of liquor for Christmas? There you go, buddy. And that shit's like three quarters of the way gone before, before we even get to dinner. Yeah. It's like... What did you? What were you think was going to happen? I used to love to watch my granddaddy. He would uh, he would eat, and then he would get his dessert, and then he'd have to have a piece of ham or a piece of turkey. Get the sweetness out of my mouth. Yeah, I've heard that time or two. And uh, but during Christmas, he would make eggnog and he would put rum in it. Yeah, but he never. He was a teetotaler. But I'd look over there towards his latter years, and he'd have a little sherry glass and he'd be sipping on rum, and I was like, you know. If I'd seen what you've seen these years, I would be. It wouldn't be a sherry glass. Shit, I'd have a straw in the bottle, <laughs> sucking the bottom out of it. So, God dang it! Well, here we go with another. Uh, just you know, so we're gonna stick with the holiday theme, and we're gonna go ahead and get into this. On today's what the Florida. Florida man is arrested for handing out marijuana because, quote, it's Christmas time. Well, I mean, can you can you argue with him? He's nah. just spreading some cheer. He's Maybe spreading, green. Yeah, spreading cheer. A Florida man was arrested after he allegedly was handing out marijuana to people passing by because it was Christmas. Police officers said 67-year-old Richard Spurrier, I wonder if he's any kin of Steve, had about 45 grams of marijuana on him when they stopped him at 11 p.m. on Saturday in St. Petersburg. St. Pete. Um, when officers questioned Spurrier, he told them that he was handing out the weed for the holidays. He was arrested and charged with possession with an intent to sell. Could he beat that in court since he was just giving it away? Yeah, he didn't sell it. I'm pretty sure if he got him a decent lawyer. Um, Judge, he's 67. <laughs> officers also found hidden inside of his walking cane a sword while being arrested. Well, you gotta protect you gotta protect yourself on the streets of St. Pete. You gotta <laughs> make sure that I've always the Grinch is not trying to steal your weed. I've always wondered how many old men that I walked by with a cane had one of them because my dad had one growing up. I had one. <laughs> I did when I used to walk with a cane. Somebody had bought me one. I can't remember who it was. But uh, it had like a metal hammer, like some kind of Russian-looking hammer with a hammer and a sickle in the middle of it. And then you unscrew it, and there's a fucking sword in there, dude. Yeah, for real. And if uh, that bitch ever fell over and hit you on the foot, it's like you got hit with a hammer. <laughs> it was not. It was painful. So, so yeah, man, this cat giving away some weed at Christmas time, trying to spread some Christmas cheer. 
uh, any way he can. And uh, for that, sir, we want to say thank you. And uh, we salute you. We salute you, sir. We salute you. So, I, If I was him, I would ask for a jury trial. Because there ain't no him. way 12 people in St. Pete no. can convict no. him for handing no. it out. If you can, uh, if you can uh, plead uh, insanity, murdering kids, and not go to jail. Yeah, down under. You for sure can get away with giving weed away at Christmas. So, um, we're but before we get started, uh, we've got some crossover fans, and so the only reason I'm doing this is because I know that he is listening. Because uh, he told me yesterday during our discussions, he really enjoys our episodes. Together. Awesome, good. That is Mr. Ryan Scoggins and Mr. Jake Sane. We uh, put three heads together and figured out that. Uh, it was an elementary step to get my soundboard working yesterday. Oh, perfect. But uh, Ryan reached out to Jake, and uh, the three of us kind of troubleshooted the whole thing. And uh, I had a uh, one of our followers on Instagram. Her son is an actual sound engineer in Atlanta, and he he jumped on, called me, and I, I can't. You know, we always say it. This this industry podcasting is probably one of the most generous supportive groups of people and for me to put it out there on social media and within eight hours have two people you know jump on it and say hey man we'll try to help you the best we can and they did and i cannot thank jake and ryan enough and then i can't i will give the shout out on our podcast with uh the other gentleman but uh man they just that's the best thing and if i hadn't have figured it out i'm sure that i could have started direct messaging a lot of podcasters and probably gotten you, yeah, I agree. some help. Yep, I agree. So, I mean, you know, I, I can't say, especially just this time of year, you know, just everybody's in a rush and you're trying to get stuff done. But to take time out of your day and help someone you really don't know, I mean, I really do appreciate it. I can't, words can't describe what it meant to me for Jake and Ryan to, to jump on there. I mean, we talked from the time I left here yesterday to about 4 o'clock yesterday. So, I mean, we... We got it done. Got it done. All right. Awesome. Hey, thank y'all for listening. Two minutes for y'all. We appreciate you. We can get Ryan's one of them musicians. He might cut us a song for the podcast. Hey, we'll play it. We'll (laughs) use it for one of our intros. I'll let Sam Elliott introduce it. (laughs) So what we we started last week with a a series. We started the Lone Wolf series, uh, and we started it off with the um, Route 91 Harvest Festival Shooter. Uh, Stephen Paddock, and the next one we wanted to talk about was uh, Timothy McBay, the OKC bomber. Um, we both feel um, that that was not an inside job. He was not a lone wolf. Uh, he he did not do all this on his own. It took too much planning and too much. Now this guy was smart, super intelligent, um, kind of a rocky little past, uh, which makes him very easy to uh, portray as a monster in the media. And uh, a perfect patsy for somebody else's yeah, possible. Un- unlike know. the Vegas shooter, there the uh, facts of this case will go by pretty quick, and the majority of this episode will be strapping on the old tinfoil hat. Yep, yep, so yep. It'll be eyeballs deep whether you want to or not. <laughs> on the morning of April the 19th of 1995, Timothy McVeigh parked a rider truck he had rented in front of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building, downtown Oklahoma City. Uh, the truck contained over 5,000 pounds of diesel fuel ammonia nitrate mixture. McVeigh ignited it, uh, timed the fuses uh, for the bombs, 
and took off on foot exactly 9.02 a.m. The bombs detonated, immediately destroying about a third of the nine-story federal building and and expelled rubble across the city. Uh, Nearby cars were incinerated in the proximity of 300 buildings. vicinity were severely damaged. Uh, 168 people lost their lives that day. 19 of those were children uh, who were in the building's daycare. Yeah, and that I think that I remember watching the the news. I was at uh, Rome's thirteenth grade mm-hmm, mm-hmm. at the time. Look at Holly, you. Yep, and uh, <laughs> the you. It it was just it was crazy to look at that building still standing with just basically you cored out the center of it. Yeah. And so, I mean, it was just, and then you find out that daycare was down there. And I mean, it was just, it was bad. It was horrific, man. I remember like those, the, I mean, the pictures were compelling. It looked like a third world country. Yeah. Yeah. Something that happened in Beirut. Beirut. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, young Timothy was raised. I couldn't find out where he was born, but he was raised in Western New York state. During his teen years, he became infatuated with becoming a survivalist. He felt as if this would be necessary in the event that the Cold War with the Soviet Union became a full-blown war. He graduated high school in 86, 1986 that is, for our younger generation listening, (laughs) and enlisted in the Army in 1988. By all accounts, he was a disciplined and meticulous soldier. He loved the rigor. While serving in the Army, he became friends with Terry Nichols and Michael Fortier, and Michael Fortier is someone you don't hear a whole lot about now. I'm going to be honest with you. He's dropped off the map, like disappeared. Yes. Now, Nichols was 12 years older than McVeigh, but the three gentlemen shared a love of this survivalist lifestyle. Mm -hmm. In 1991, McVeigh was sent to the Persian Gulf in the first Iraq war. He was was decorated with several medals for his service. However, after failing to qualify for the Special Forces program, McVeigh accepted the Army's offer of an early discharge and left in the fall of 1991. Wonder why he didn't get his special forces. You think he didn't pass his psyche vow? Maybe. I mean, that's that's a rule. As tall as he is, though, and and I've seen this is a total non has anything to do with this, but I've seen a lot of stuff with that selection. They'll tell you it's not the guys when they first show up. It's not the guys you initially pick out of the bunch that make it. It's the ones about our size mm-hmm. that just don't quit. Right. You know, it's the same thing with any of those special tier one guys, seals you know, recon, all those guys. So he he's a tall drink of water. So, I mean, he he may not have had what it took. Yeah, just had the body makeup for it. Yeah. So at the time he got out of the Army, the military was downsizing because the fall of the Soviet Union had just really happened. And as a result of the end of the Cold War, McVeigh shifted his ideology from a hatred of Soviet communist governments to a suspicion that the U.S. federal government was not what it appeared to be, especially the president at the time, Mr. Bill Clinton. Mm -hmm. For those of you that have forgotten, Clinton had successfully campaigned for presidency on a platform of gun control, and that kind of rubbed McVeigh the wrong way. So McVeigh, Nichols, and a lot of his their close friends found a deep-seated anger for the U.S. government, especially after the August 1992 shootout at Ruby Ridge in Idaho, and that was between federal agents and Randy Weaver at his cabin. And then a year later, the Waco siege in 93, where 75 members of the Branch Davidians died just outside of Waco, Texas. 
Now, during the standoff between federal agents and the Branch Davidians, now this took place, and I think a lot of people have kind of forgotten how long this played out. I mean, it started in late February of right. 93. This wasn't like a two-day ordeal. No, no. I mean, they were probably outside Waco, I'd say at least probably seven, eight days before they the started, initial siege. Yeah, yeah. Um, people had started gathering on a hill right at the compound's main drive. And there are pictures out there that show a young Timothy McVeigh sitting on the hood, uh, trunk of his car in support of the Branch Davidians. Wow. So, you know, that those three things, if you are on the side of the government has too much overreach, yeah. within two years you have Ruby Ridge and uh, Waco, that's going to skew your your thought process yeah we take a look at the timeline of events uh you got may 24th 1988 mcveigh and nichols and fort fortner enter the army uh mcveigh in 1991 drops out uh of eligibility for special forces december 31st of 1991 uh mcveigh receives an honorable discharge October 1994, McVeigh uses soup cans to show how he would arrange explosives in a V-shape inside of a truck for maximum destruction, which is a big red flag. Yeah. Uh, McVeigh rents a rider truck uh, in Junction City, Kansas. April 18th of 1995, McVeigh and Nichols mix a fertilizer and fuel oil bomb. Uh, I think that's called Jerry. Is it? I think it? it's I think it's pronounced Jerry Lake, but it may be Geary. Okay, Jerry, it, it's Jerry spelled Lake. Geary. Like in Alabama, they don't say Jordan; they say Jordan. Jordan. Michael Jordan. They ain't got no. That, I'm like, no, son. That's Jordan. There's, there's no e there. That's an o. Jordan. Uh, uh, near Junction Junction City. Uh, you got April the 19th of 1995. Five thousand uh, pound uh, truck bomb destroys nine stories of the Alfred P. Mira Federal Building in downtown Oklahoma City. Killing 165, 19 children, injuring another 100, I'm sorry, 850. Uh, the building blast damaged uh, 312 buildings and 14, which had to be demolished. That's how, you're talking about 500-pound bomb, a 500-pound bomb. Uh, the aftershock and the, or the percussion off of that has got to be. Destroyed 14 buildings. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, 19, or April the 21st of 1995, shortly uh, before he was released uh, from the Noble County Jail on a traffic arrest, McVeigh is identified as the bombing suspect and turned over to FBI. Nichols surrenders in Harrington, uh, Kansas. August of 10th of 1995, McVeigh, Nichols, and Fortner uh, are indicted. Uh, Fortner pleads guilty. And December 4th of 1995, Colorado U.S. District Court Judge <clears throat> Richard, is it? Match, I guess. Yeah, Match appointed uh, to oversee McVeigh's trial. Match removes the trial uh, to Denver on February the 20th of 1996. February the 28th of 1997, Dallas Morning News reports McVeigh admitted to his defense team that he had set off the bomb. Now, Uh, these next couple of dates are kind of telling on how long this trial took. Yeah. Uh, Jury selection began in 1997, uh, in March of 1997. April the 24th of 1997, prosecutors and defense attorneys make their opening statements. June the 2nd of 1997, jury convicts McVeigh on all accounts, uh, all 11 counts of murder and conspiracy. June the 13th of 1997, jury condemns McVeigh to, or condemns McVeigh to die by lethal injection. Uh, August 14th of 1997, McVeigh formally sentenced to death. Uh, 
September the 8th of 1997, 10th U.S. Court uh, Circuit. Uh, good Lord, I can't read. 10th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals confirms conviction. December the 23rd of 1997, Nichols is found guilty of one count of, of conspiracy and eight counts of involuntary manslaughter. Jury deadlock spares him the, de- spares him the death penalty for Nichols. Yeah, they um, had, from what I could read researching this, I think that that was the third or second or third deadlock they had on what should be done conviction-wise, and I think the judge stepped in and said, all right, just take the death penalty off. Gotcha. On June the 4th of 1998, uh, Nichols is sentenced to life without parole. March 8th of 1999, U.S. Supreme Court rejects McVeigh's appeal. Uh, I don't understand what the appeal was about, too. There's no tell. There's, Probably they didn't dot an I or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> March 8th of uh, – uh, March 29th of 1999, Oklahoma's uh, County District Attorney Bob Macy files – 160 state murder charges against Nichols and asked for the death penalty again. And then Senate approves a $15 million uh, for Oklahoma City National Memorial Institute uh, for the prevention of terrorists. So they're going to use that money for that. You're not going to stop it with $15 million. Sorry. April the 19th of 2000, Bill Clinton attends the dedication ceremonies for the Oklahoma City National Memorial and Museum. February the 18th of 2001, Oklahoma City National Memorial and Museum is dedicated. The $7.9 million, 30,000-square-foot museum is housed in an old journal record building, uh, which was heavily damaged by the bombing. On June 11th of 2001, McVeigh is executed in Indiana Federal Prison. His remains are cremated and disposed of at an undisclosed location. Now, here's where it's odd for me. He's exec- he's he's lethal injection. He's cremated, and nobody knows where the body went. Okay, okay. Keep that in mind, because we will come back to that. Nope. <laughs> um, <laughs> Nichols is ordered to stand trial on state murder charges on May the thirteenth of two thousand three. Uh, September the thirteenth of two thousand three, trial moves to McAllister. March the first of two thousand four. Jury selection begins on Nichols State Trial. On May the 26th of 2004, McAllister jury finds Nichols guilty of 161 first-degree murder counts, one count of arson, and one count of conspiracy. What's funny is, you know, the death toll was 158, so I'm thinking two people passed between yeah, that time. and that has to be what it was. Uh, on June the 11th of 2004, jury deadlocks against uh, spares Nichols' life. <clears throat> August the 9th of 2004, District Judge Stephen Taylor sentenced Nichols to 161 consecutive life sentences without parole. That means uh, you're not getting out anytime soon. What's funny is, and we'll get into it later, but McVeigh's housed at Terre Haute in Indiana. Yep. But they send Nichols to Supermax in Colorado. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's you talk about polar opposites. Now, And it may be that Supermax doesn't have a death row. It's just four lifers like that. I gotcha. Though. It could be. Yeah, I thought that was a little odd myself. Um, you got uh, January the 20th of 2006. Fortner is released from prison. His location is not revealed, prompting speculation that he entered the witness protection program. I would say yes. I would say yes, for sure. Um, and in January 8th of 2015, the memorial and museum reopens after a $10, million, $10 million renovation. And ladies and gentlemen, that's basically the 
facts that of the Oklahoma City bombing if you just do a cursory Google search. But you know us. We we don't do cursory. We got to dig a little deeper. So we get into, and some people may not have ever heard of this place, but it is called Elohim City. And it is located on a mountainous 400-acre parcel in Adair County, Oklahoma, just northwest of Fort Smith, Arkansas. The compound was founded by white supremacist Robert Millar as a Christian identity settlement in 1973. The compound, which has had at times over 100 residents and has been considered to be a hotbed of anti-government movement, along with other criminal activities. Now, phone records show... Calls made by McVeigh from the Imperial Motel in Kingman, Arizona on April 5th, 1995, exactly two weeks before the Oklahoma City bombing. The first call is to the Ryder Truck Rental Company, and the second, just two minutes later, is a call placed to Elham City in Muldrow, Oklahoma. The call was an unsuccessful attempt to reach a man named Andreas Strassmeyer. Strassmeyer just so happens to be the grandson of one of the founders of the Nazi party in Germany. Hmm. Now, in McVeigh's authorized biography, he admits calling Strassmeyer, which they referred to him as Andy the German, which is none other than Mr. Strassmeyer on April 5th, 1995. He says the purpose of the call was to ask Strassmeyer, who he met at a Tulsa gun show in 1994, whether he could use Elohim City as a hideout after the bombing. McVeigh admitting discuss, admitted discussing political issues with Strassmeyer, but claimed that Strassmeyer had nothing to do with the bombing itself. However, a polygraph test was taken by McVeigh and showed that while he was truthful in discussing his own role in the bombing, he, quote, showed signs of evasion when he said no person's other than those already charged, were involved in the bombing. Now, we get into a lot of just snippets from a lot of different documents that are reachable on the Internet. They have been released through the Freedom of Information Act. Um, In a memo written on April 20th of 1995, federal agents stated, quote, it is suspected that members of Elohim City are involved either directly or indirectly through conspiracy. Now, Timothy McVeigh's defense attorney, Stephen Jones, said, quote, I don't doubt Tim's role in the conspiracy, but I think he clearly agonized his role, enlarged it to cover for those who were involved. And that is in that was an AP news release in February of 2003. Now, the commander of the Oklahoma City investigation, Danny Coulson, said in 2003, quote, I think you have too many coincidences here that raise questions about whether other people are involved. The close associations with Elohim City and the earlier plan of Elohim City residents to do the same bombing of the Murrah building all suggest the complicity of other people. Again, that was released through the AP in February of 2003. Then we get to Dan Deffenbaugh. He was a retired FBI chief of the Oklahoma City bombing investigation. He said, quote, if I were still in the bureau, the investigation would be reopened, end quote. Right. So there's enough there. Because that's basically letting you know right there, there's still a gazillion unanswered questions on this thing. Yeah. Now They made it too easy, too cut and dry, and then they executed this guy quick and got rid of his body. 
Now, there were two fellow inmates that were on death row with McVeigh, and they revealed in a book called Secrets Worth Dying For by David Hammer and Jeffrey Paul in 2005, I mean 2004, that after receiving a tour of the Elohim City compound on October 12, 1993, McVeigh and Nichols had a meeting with Strassmeyer and several other men to discuss, quote, direct action against the federal government, end quote. Within months, McVeigh had joined two of the men he met at Elohim City in robbing banks. McVeigh served as the getaway driver. Around the Midwest is where they started robbing banks. In April of 94, in a meeting with Strassmeyer and white Aryan resistant leader Dennis Mahone, McVeigh first discussed blowing up the federal Murrah building. In September of 94, McVeigh attended a series of planning meetings in Elohim City. And then in the early months of 1995, McVeigh and members of the Aryan Resistance, or ARA, from Elohim City were conducting practice runs of the bombing. Michael Brescia was chosen to accompany McVeigh on his bombing run. On April 8th, McVeigh met in Tulsa with Brescia and Strassmeyer to discuss the bombing and watch strippers at Lady Godiva's. I don't think Lady Godiva's is where you go and get a good lunch. Well, they do have a great buffet. I heard it was uh, <laughs> free. Yeah. With a cover. Yeah. Just don't eat the, the, the tuna melt. It's not. Or the sushi. Hey, I got a, I got a question. Why that building? Why that why that specific building? I had read that they chose it because at the time it held I, all right from this is total running off memory, but for Oklahoma City, their I guess headquarters for the FBI is actually located in Dallas. So they report to Dallas. But that building held offices for the ATF. It uh held some CIA, CIA some, things, okay. some secret service agents okay. were housed there, along with just regular FBI things. That makes a sense. That I makes think that sense. he got the most, sorry, bang for his buck sure. by targeting that building in Oklahoma City. I got gotcha. you. So what happened at Lady Godiva's? According to published reports, the security camera in the dressing room of Lady Godiva's, a strip club in Tulsa, captured an interesting scene on April the 8th of 1995 on the tape a man who witnesses say that, uh, the club said it was McVeigh, is heard to say to a dancer, I'm a very smart man, and on April the 19th of 1995, you'll remember me for the rest of your life. The dancer laughs and says, oh, really? Uh, the man replies, yes, you will. The dancer walks out of the dressing room and says the other dancer's weirdo. I wonder if she's seen some of them weirdos in her tenure at I'm Lady pretty- Godiva's. I'm pretty sure that's not the worst weirdo she ever met in there. <laughs> Uh, maybe the most notorious weirdo, but not the worst one. Um, witness at the club after looking at the photos said they saw McVeigh along with Strassmeyer and another man, possibly John Doe too, who we would love to get into. Uh, uh, some topics of conversation with this guy about this guy uh, sitting at a table together. Uh, Bricia and other ARA members assigned McVeigh and loading explosives onto the rider truck, mixing them. Uh, Bricia told uh, Oklahoma City in the rider truck. Uh, he rode to Oklahoma City uh, in the rider truck with McVeigh on four nineteen ninety five, exiting at a stoplight uh, Northwest Fifth Street in Harvey. McVeigh then parked the truck in front of the Murrah Building and quickly walked in the other direction to the getaway car. Now, there's a two thousand three AP report that said that McVeigh's connection to Elohim City and white supremacists um, is a little bit more than the 
media let on. The AP writer John Solomon's investigation led him to conclude that white supremacists from Elohim City played a major role in the bombing conspiracy. Solomon noted, for example, an FBI teletype showed that on April 16th, 1995, two Elohim City gang members left the compound for a location in Kansas close to, quote, where McVeigh was doing the final assembly of his bomb, end quote. Solomon also reported that two Elohim City gang members, Kevin Langan and Mark Thomas, told federal agents that they could provide information linking McVeigh to the Aryan Resistance, or the ARA. Even more compelling evidence, Solomon reported, came from the, an informant, John Schultz, who... Quote, told agents in 1997 that he was sure beyond a shadow of a doubt he saw McVeigh at Elohim City in 1994 at a meeting about a mysterious delivery and use of rider truck, end quote. On October 12, 1993, McVeigh was given a ticket for a prohibited passing on Arkansas State Highway Number 59, just 12 miles from Elohim City. Agents also located a hotel receipt showing McVeigh stayed at a hotel in Vin or Vine, Oklahoma, just miles from Elohim City on September 13, 1994, the day that a grand jury concluded he formulated the bombing plot. So what else happened in on April 19, 1995? Well, there's two major things going down, one in Arkansas. And from a May 12, 1996 story by Howard Pankratz in the Denver Post, Former members of a radical paramilitary group and a retired FBI agent believe last year's bombing of the Alfred P. Murrah building in Oklahoma City may have been the revenge for the execution of one of its members, Richard Wayne Snell, a member of the Covenant, the Sword, and the Arm of the Lord, or the CSA. That's not the Confederate States of America. How can we continue to do these terrible acts in the name of Jesus? I don't know, but they've been doing that since Jesus I mean, was around. Let's look at the Catholic Church. Okay, wait, that's enough. Uh, that's okay. a whole nother Sorry, episode. I'm off that. I'm sorry. Now, uh, <laughs> man, y'all, does, y'all keep Jesus out of it. Y'all just some mean assholes. Now, Snell was executed on April 19th, 1995, 12 hours after the bomb ripped through the Murrah Federal Building. Snell and the CSA had targeted the same building for bombing after the 1983 death of North Dakota farmer Gordon Call in a fiery confrontation with federal authorities in Arkansas. A former high-ranking Arkansas prison official told the Denver Post that during the four days before Snell's execution, Snell repeatedly predicted that there would be a bombing or an explosion on the day of his death. Now, I didn't put this in the notes, and we'll come back to the actual what the guy said, but I have heard on another podcast and read in some articles, Snell is in the, I guess, the common room where they all come out of their cells and sit around and play poker and shit like that. He tells one of the guards to turn the TVs on because there's something big about to happen. And the guards keep saying, man, I ain't watching Good Morning America. He goes, Trust I'm telling me. you, turn it on. So they finally turn it on at 9 o'clock, two minutes later. Boom. You can't tell me that's not. Yeah, he knows. Yeah. It's been pre-planned. This, so, and and this is another event, too. Like, this ain't something that took them. They, they took a week to put this thing together. No. This thing was well devised. Well, just like that guy said, they were they targeted that thing in 83. Yeah. They, they've been working on this whole, yeah, 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 yeah. So the official, Alan Abel, said he was so concerned that he took extraordinary personal 
precautions the day of the execution. Quote, based on what I was hearing from the management team and briefings, I was concerned enough, end quote, to take the precautions, said Abel's, a retired Navy officer who was a legislative assistant to the director of the Arkansas Department of Corrections. If you're an assistant to the director and you're taking precautions, y'all know what's going on. Yeah, 100%. So what happened in Spokane, Washington on April 19, 1995? Let's take a look at it. Uh, from January 1996, the story of Spokane uh, Spokesman Review, according to the manager of the Spokane Motel, about 715 uh 45 minutes before the bombing, Chevy, uh, it's like Kehoe, yeah. uh, a former resident of Elam City, um, is it El- El- Elohim. Elohim City, uh, asked to have the motel's live event television turned on CNN. According to the manager, days before, he had mentioned to me that there's going to be uh, something that's going to happen on the 19th, and it's going to wake up a lot of people. Uh, the manager described Kohi, uh, Kehoe <laughs> as a uh, ecstatic, he was ecstatic when the bomb the bomb was announced on television. He said it's about time as he's celebrating in the lobby. Um, ATF informant Carol Howell testimony concerning McFay's uh, presence in Elohim City. Uh, now, this lady is a confidential informant. She was a former debutante in Arkansas, I think. Maybe Oklahoma. I can't remember exactly, but. I think she got twisted up in some uh, drugs, and so they kind of pounced on her and used her. Yeah. Yeah. So this is kind of, uh, you want to read the questions, I'll, I'll do the answering, because it'll make oh, a little yeah. bit more sense. All right. Should I do it in Sam Elliott's voice? I'm just kidding. Why not? I'll do it in Mae West. <laughs> <laughs> now, are you familiar with Timothy McVeigh looks like, uh, what Timothy McVeigh looks like, Miss Howell? Yes, sir. Have you ever seen photographs of Timothy McVeigh? Yes, I have. Did you ever see Timothy McVeigh in Elohim City Compound? I believe I did. All right. When did you see him? It was in July of 1994. Okay, where did you see him? He was at a section of the compound walking across a lawn near the church building. And was he accompanied by any other individuals who you know? Yes, he was. And who were they? A man named Peter Ward and a man named Andres Strassmeyer. Peter Ward, John Doe number two? Maybe. Uh, about how far away were you when you believe you saw Timothy McVeigh? Approximately 70 feet. At the time you saw him, did you know his name was Timothy McVeigh? No, sir. You subsequently came to learn his name was Timothy, Timothy McVeigh? Correct. <laughs> I feel like I'm reading lines. In a, I know. It. Yeah, I'm really terrible at this. That's why I'm not in any movies. Uh, now, did you have... Uh, did you have occasion to, did Mr. Mahone strike that? Did Mr. Mahone have an apartment in Tulsa, Oklahoma during this time period? A house, yes. A house. And did you have uh, occasion to spend time where during the time period that we were talking about in fall of 1994? Yes, sir. Did Mr. Mahone, in your recollection, did he ever receive any phone calls while you were at the house with him? Yes, sir. Do you recall Mr. Mahone ever mentioning the name Tim Tuttle, Miss Wilkinson? Objection. Overruled. <laughs> yes, I do. So basically, the defense objects to him questioning and His trying surname. to tie surname Tim Tuttle. But, I gotcha. But the judge says, no, no, no. And so she answers and she says, yes, I do. So, okay. Okay. Can you tell the jury not any uh, contents of the phone? 
call that can relate to you, but how you came to hear the name uh, Tim Total? Mr. Mahone received a phone call. We were sitting in the living room. He went into the bedroom to answer the phone, and I heard the, his statements from where I was sitting. And what did you hear him say? I heard him say, Tim Tuttle, 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 and laughed. <laughs> Does this guy have a stutter? He's got a stand-up comedy. Uh, he does. He is. And you subsequently had conversation about that phone call that he had received. Yes, when he came back. And Tim Tuttle is the alias for McVeigh. And he freely admits he used that alias. Let's get into the the meat and oh, potatoes God. of John Doe number two, which may be... We may have just renamed this the John Doe number two podcast. Yeah. Here we go. So strap on the tinfoil hats, boys and girls, because this is going to get... You may need some string and a board. Do not turn your microwave on at this point. No. Because you will piss yourself <laughs> and forget who you are for 30 minutes. So immediately following the bombing, law enforcement had been searching furiously for a man whom numerous sources said they saw with McVeigh and who, by some accounts, was seen walking away from the rider truck. The character whose police composite sketch became known around the world as John Doe Number 2. According to the police description, this man was about five foot nine, muscular, dark-haired by some accounts, he drove an older model pickup truck and had a dragon tattoo on his left arm. Red dragons. <laughs> Witnesses described John Doe number two as being a handsome, muscular man with an olive complexion. Dana Bradley told investigators that she saw John Doe number two drive the rider truck to the Murrah building, get out, do something in the back of the truck, then flee. Several, Set the bomb in motion. Mm-hmm. Several people including McVeigh, according to two men who shared death row with him, have suggested that the Aryan resistance, whatever, the ARA member Brescia, who we discussed earlier, was John Doe number two. Brescia, in 1997, plea bargain made the day after the government announced John John Doe number two never existed, admitted to robbing one bank and served four years in prison. Other people who claim knowledge of events, perhaps more credible, insist that Brescia is not John Doe number two and that the real John Doe number two is a man he met in Kingman, Arizona, Joey Leon. Now, and a lot of people's like, well, why do they call him John Doe number two? Well, at the time, John Doe number one and John Doe number two exited the rider truck. John Doe number one was later identified as Timothy McVeigh. Mm -hmm. So that's where this John Doe number two comes from. Gotcha. Now, a very good candidate is Jose Padilla. And we are not, I mean, we could probably do an hour just on this. I wanted to say gentleman, but he's not. Um, Piece of shit. Yes. There we go. Jose Padilla. He has been rumored to be John Doe number two. Jose Padilla has an extensive criminal record, including an involvement in a gang-related murder when he was only 15 years old. Padilla was born in Brooklyn, New York, and moved to northwest Chicago at the age of five. He spent time in juvie in 1985 for an armed robbery that left one victim dead of stab wounds. He is, If you stab someone to death, that's up close and personal. There's yep. a lot of hate there. Right. Later, armed with a baseball bat, Padilla and a knife-wielding accomplice robbed three men. One man fled, but the two thieves chased him, and Padilla's accomplice stabbed him in the stomach. 
As a juvenile, Padilla was convicted of aggravated battery, armed robbery, and attempted armed robbery, and was in custody in Illinois from November 1985 to May of 1988. This is the kind of person you don't let out of jail. No. Career criminal. Yep. After serving time on murder and assault charges, Padilla moves to Florida, but quickly found himself in trouble again when he was convicted on both aggravated assault with intent to commit a felony and discharging a firearm from a vehicle. Drive-by. Mm-hmm. Despite his already lengthy criminal record, he was sentenced to just one year probation. He didn't even spend any time in prison. In 1992, one year after he was released from probation, Padilla was convicted in Florida of aggravated assault with a firearm. While serving time in the Broward County Jail, Padilla was accused of battery on a jail officer and resisting without violence in January of 92. He settled the charges with guilty pleas after spending only 10 months behind bars. It was either during or after serving these 10 months in the Broward County Jail that the man raised as a Roman Catholic converted to radical Islam with his future future wife, Sherry Marie Stultz. By 1998, Padilla had moved to Egypt. His goal, according to the officials, was to further explore Muslim teachings and traditions. He stayed about two years, aligning himself with illegal underground extremist mosques. And again, we didn't do this guy justice. Between the time he gets out in 92 in Broward County to 98, he's back and forth to the Middle East. And there's a whole Middle Eastern and tie to this case and John Doe number two and conspiracy theories that we're not even going to touch on because I don't think y'all want to see it for three hours. <laughs> well, <laughs> we just, can. Well, just for that information right there, let's just go ahead and say this. If you got a white supremacist group, it's kind of hard for me to understand why a white supremacist group is working with a person of color and with Islamic faith. Okay. Why are they, why are they going hand in hand with this guy when that is goes against every single thing that they believe and teach people. And so to me, you can rule out the, I'll give the you white supremacist right out, of, right out of the gate. I mm-hmm. can give you a teaser. And again, y'all, this and it's up to y'all. I mean, we can we'll go we can do a number. We'll two. go whatever direction you want us to go in with it. But there are, I, and I have twenty eight pages of notes. Just so y'all <laughs> understand this, we're on page seven. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, I would dare say there's probably twenty more pages of notes that I could compile about the Middle Eastern tie to the whole thing, and it comes back. And I, and I thought of this, and then when you kind of verbalized it down, it's that thing where. Your enemy is your friend if you both have a common enemy. This is true. And so at the time, radical Islam was just getting going on the world stage, and they didn't like the federal government, and Elohim City surely shit didn't like the federal government. Mm-hmm. So you sleep, you align yourself sleep sometimes. with the enemy. Yeah. And you also, too, you got to look at how easy was it for... God, to be able to go back and forth back then. Yeah, yeah. And then... Uh, the funding for for an uh, operation this big, it's kind I mean, of, there's kind ties to Saddam. Uh, there's yeah. ties to, at the time they didn't know it, but um, Al Qaeda. I mean, it's oh, it's it's crazy, y'all. It is crazy. But it's easy for the government to not scare the work scare scare us as being. To me, it's my personal opinion, and you can take it for whatever it's worth, and it ain't worth a whole lot. But this was the first attack on American soil by Islamic terrorists. I think to me, the way it read, they tied Padilla 
or someone that looks like John Doe number two to exiting the World Trade Center during the first bombing. Then you fast forward to this, and then, you know, eight, nine years later, the towers happen. Yeah. So they got eight or nine years to plan a bigger attack. Right. And they're seeing how easy it is to get in and out of our country and to move around undetected. Undetected. Yeah. It's all, it's all there. Cause again, it's not, you know, back at the time when this happened, the last thing the United States was worried about was being attacked on soil, like on our own soil. Nobody was worried about that. No, because we figured they didn't have the testicles to do it. Yeah. By God, they did. Not once. Not once, but twice. Yep. So there's another sighting of John Doe number two, and this one is very interesting. And if it hadn't have been so well documented, and this is documented through FBI, released FBI documents. And this comes about around 4 p.m. on April 18th, 1995, one day before the bombing. A rider truck stopped for gas at the Easy Mart in far north central Oklahoma at a small town named Newkirk. A light blue 1970s Chevy pickup truck stopped at the same time with the rider truck at the Easy Mart in Newkirk. According to witnesses, the light blue pickup truck was driven by Terry Nichols and had a passenger with dark curly hair who was wearing a baseball cap, mirrored sunglasses, and was dressed all in black. In April in Oklahoma, it's a little it's a little warm. It's Eric Robert Rudolph. No, I'm just kidding. That'd be funny as no, shit. Wouldn't that be crazy? The pickup truck passenger had dark olive skin and appeared to look possibly Middle, Middle Eastern or Latino. He also had a stern gaze and a large chest. So it's lining up with all the physical descriptions of John Doe number two. The rider truck reportedly had an overhang and one occupant. Now, you may think, why the hell are you bringing up an overhang? Well, supposedly, there was... McVeigh was seen in a rider truck without an overhang. Okay. And then he was seen in a truck with an overhang. So was there a decoy rider truck? Or was there plans to do two dos, bombs? Dos bombs. Yeah. So the driver of said rider truck with overhang was short, light hair, and a large nose, eyes, and a mouth that were in small proportion to his face. But would it? Let me ask you. Let's go back on that a bit. So if we got two trucks... Right? We got two trucks. Was the other truck parked near the one that detonated and it had explosive in it as, in, as well? That would make more that, sense. That makes more sense because of the damage that it caused. Well, we're going to get into that, yes, too, I'm, later. All right. <laughs> yeah, buddy. An employee at the Easy Mart said that Nichols came into the store and bought eight burritos, but no chips or drinks. If you're buying eight gas station burritos, you need a drink. Yeah, and that's not the only thing exploding that day. <laughs> <laughs> This is true. <laughs> if that's two, that's exactly right. Yeah, if two burritos per person. Those are ticking time bombs. Yeah, it is. And a bumpy rider truck. You're you're on the clock. <laughs> yes, you are. Your sphincter's on the clock. Short clock. Short clock. A short, a short, short clock. Short. Uh, we got to leave the party. Why? I, I sharted. <laughs> really? What's that? I tried to fart and I shit my pants. A little shit came out. <laughs> So Nichols reportedly gave some food to the driver in the rider truck who appeared to have a disagreement with Nichols about something when Nichols handed him his fruit. He told him he wanted a damn hot dog. Well, he probably told him, he's like, motherfucker, I wanted a drink, and I got to choke these two gas station burritos down. I'm going to whoop your ass. (laughs) You better hope you get out of this truck alive. The driver of the rider truck and the passenger in Nichols' pickup truck never got out, according to the employee. 
Now, the same employee was interviewed by OKC TV station KWTV Channel 9 and their reporter Gan Matthews in mid-May 1995. The witness also gave an interview to the Arkansas City Traveler newspaper, which came out in May uh, on May 1st, 1995, the article entitled Bombing Suspects Spotted in Newkirk. Now, like normal, the newspaper reporter, Jeff Guy, got some of the significant facts as to which who was in which truck confused in the article. The Easy Mart employee was considered to be a very reliable witness as she was married to a police officer and was also very observant with details. Yeah, I bet so. And people are like, well, what does it matter if you're married to a police officer? Well, if he has any salt about him, he kind of teaches his family, look, always make a, and you, I, I used to do this with my son, and I don't do it anymore because I'm lazy, but you make a conscious effort to get them to kind of subconsciously pick out certain things in a situation. Mm-hmm. If you see something crazy, then you need to kind of, all right, that don't look right. Maybe I need to, even if you're jotting down notes. Right. So she's extra vigilant. and She's being aware of your surroundings. Yes. 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 So the Dallas Morning News had a lengthy article published in May 1995, which showed a map of the route taken by McVeigh and other John Doe's from near Junction City, Kansas, and south through Arkansas City, Kansas, into Oklahoma, passing directly through Newkirk. Oklahoma, I'm sorry, passing through Newkirk, Oklahoma, en route to OKC. A 32-year veteran of the OKC Police Department told the writer of the Dallas Morning News in May 1995 that up to five men associated with the OKC bombing had passed through Newkirk with a rider truck. Five men. It's way more than two. Dos. Yeah. Yeah. Two other witnesses who taught school at Newkirk came to the Easy Mart around 4 p.m. on April 18, 1995 and saw a rider truck parked there. One of the witnesses said... That to buy a Coke, the witness was standing in line with three men waiting to pay for their snacks. This witness said two of these men came out of the Easy Mart and that one of them passed snacks to the driver of the rider truck. This witness said that the man buying snacks and giving it to, giving it to the rider truck driver was about five foot seven, unshaven, may have been. Terry Nichols. One of the teacher witnesses also said that the man buying snacks got into an old pickup truck. All the witnesses said that they were interviewed by the FBI, and some said they were even interviewed by the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation at the same time they were interviewed by the FBI. Now, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms came to the Easy Mart about a week after the bombing, canvassing the area, and learned of witnesses who had seen the rider truck, Nichols, and John Doe. ATF interviewed the Easy Mart employee and had the Easy Mart thoroughly dusted for fingerprints, even though many customers had since been in the Easy Mart. You're not going to do that if you don't think that it's true. Right. And uh, do you know how many fucking fingerprints they're having to go through? Yeah, even if it's... Well, just think about... On 27, going to Somerville, those two convenience stores right there at the T. Yeah. Just think about how many people will go through there, and that's in the middle of fucking nowhere. Yeah, yeah. So, you're right not there, t- you're where not Ballinger's go- used to be? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a you're lot not of telling me that the FBI is going to go to Bumblebutt, Newkirk, Oklahoma, just because they're doing due diligence. No, yeah. they were there because they thought something was real. Yeah, yeah. All right, so now here are some eyewitness accounts of John Doe number 2. These are not the only ones. These are hand-picked from an article that I read. And the guy that wrote the article said he has 
probably 25 more, but he felt like these were the They most. had some meat to them. Yeah. Gotcha. So the first one happens on April 15th, 1995, which is a Saturday in Harrington, Kansas. And it is at the Santa Fe Trail Diner on U.S. Highway 56 at approximately 7.15 or 7.30. Now, this one's a little long, okay, but it's kind of telling as to who's in the party. The lady, Barbara Wittenberg, and her husband, Robert, were the proprietors of Santa Fe Trail Diner and Santa Fe Motel in Harrington, Kansas. Very smart people. Open a diner attached to a hotel. <laughs> Genius. Genius, boys. The di- diner was situated right off Highway 56 near Junction City, Kansas. Wittenberg worked at the diner where she was in charge of the kitchen and the dining area. On April 15th, Saturday, she opened the diner around 7 a.m. It was a typical Saturday, except for the fact that her opening waitress had called to say she would be late. The absence of the opening waitress left Wittenberg alone to seat, serve, and cook until the lady arrived. Within about 15 minutes of opening, Timothy McVeigh, Terry Nichols, and John Doe Number 2 came into the restaurant for coffee. There was a light-colored sedan with an Arizona license plate and a rider truck in the parking lot when the group arrived. Wittenberg's son said the vehicle with the Arizona plate was a Thunderbird. Okay. Or one of our thunder chickens. <laughs> when serving the group coffee, Wittenberg engaged the group in small talk. Noting the rider truck in the parking lot, Wittenberg asked if someone was moving and where to. John Doe number two spoke up saying Oklahoma. Wittenberg replied that she had relatives in, t- in a town south of Oklahoma City. According to Wittenberg, the remark immediately stopped the conversation dead in its tracks. Quote, McVeigh looked at him and you could feel buckets of ice being poured over our conversation. I got out of it, end quote. Wittenberg remembers the encounter vividly, not only because she had opened the cafe short staff that morning, but also because she recognized Nichols and McVeigh as occasional customers. So they've been in there multiple times. However, the third man with the group, Wittenberg, testified she did not recognize. She would later tell investigators and and testify to a grand jury that this man had olive skin and looked possibly... Hawaiian. Slash Middle Eastern. Yeah. Wittenberg testified that the man with McVeigh and Nichols had a thick neck and looked like a bodybuilder. These details are notable in the early, in nearly a dozen witnesses have used identical language to describe John Doe number two. For example, witnesses Bill Maloney and Joe Davidson described the man they saw in November of 94 with McVeigh and Nichols as a, quote, like a bodybuilder and said that he had a, quote, thick neck. Post office employee Debbie Nakashi testified the man she saw McVeigh with was muscular, quote, like a bodybuilder. Maloney, Nakanashi, and Wittenberg all noted the man's muscular build and used almost identical language to describe him. When shown the FBI sketch of the man encountered by Bill Maloney and Joe Davidson, Wittenberg told a CNN reporter before they went crazy, quote, this is the closest picture I've seen yet, end quote. Hmm. Did Bill Maloney, Joe Davidson, Debbie Nakanashi, and Barbara Wittenberg all see the same individual? I would say. Uh, I would say yes. Yes. Now, Wittenberg's account was reported on in major newspapers, wire services, and magazines, and she would recount what she had been or she had seen in at least one documentary film. Wittenberg's account appeared in the New York Times in the fall of 95, the Washington Post in April of 96, in a May 96 edition of the New American Magazine, 
the June 4th edition of the McCurtain Gazette, and the June 23rd, 1996 edition of the Kansas City Star. The AP would issue a syndicated report throughout the national newspaper on March 9th, 1997, and the same month, Wittenberg's account would feature prominently in a Time magazine article. You don't get your story in all of those if you don't have some substance. And those reporters, and I hate to say this, back then they did their due diligence. They chased down leads. They made sure before they printed something that it was true and they had their... It wasn't made-up stuff in a newsroom that all had to report what was told to be reported. Right. Yeah. I mean, this was legitimate... Journalism. Journalism. Yeah. I mean, they did their due diligence. I mean, for you to get in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Time Magazine, not to mention every the, of those other ones we mentioned, that's a big story, man. So... Here's, here's the fun part. Yeah. That is when the death threat started. She mm-hmm. received a threatening letter, which she turned over to the FBI. Wittenberg would later testify in 97 before the grand jury in panel to investigate the bombing that she began receiving death threats telling her to keep her mouth shut. She told a daily Oklahoma newspaper reporter about these threats saying, quote, I've started to regret I ever said a thing, end quote. Adding, quote, I don't do telephone interviews anymore. I used to not be that way. I'm sorry. So they got to her. Yeah, they did. So the rider truck that Wittenberg saw in the parking lot caused a considerable confusion for both newspaper and the FBI. Many papers, including the New York Times, inaccurately reported the date of Wittenberg's encounter as April 18th, the day after the bomb truck was rented. The FBI discounted her account because she had seen the rider truck thinking she must be mistaking or lying. She had seen too much. Yes. what she saw. (laughs) After all, McVeigh did not rent the 20-foot bomb truck until April 17th. However, Wittenberg's account matches up with that of other witnesses in Kansas. Nearly a dozen witnesses saw McVeigh with a rider truck between April 11th and April 17th for an entire week before renting the more massive truck from Elliott's. So there's your second truck. Yep. Witnesses from the Dreamland Motel all told the FBI that they distinctly remember McVeigh parking a rider truck in the lot on Easter Sunday, April the 16th. These witnesses universally described the first truck as a smaller, having a washed-out, faded look. Some of the witnesses said that the truck did not have the rider logo on it. This smaller moving truck was spotted by at least three witnesses parked at Gary Lake or Gary Lake on four consecutive days, April the 11th through the 14th. Following that, the truck was parked at the Dreamland Motel. At some point, following Easter Sunday, the truck disappeared. It is assumed that the bombing conspirators got rid of that truck because it was too small to hold the 5,000-pound bomb, and it's possible the truck was going to be used in another planned bombing. News reports from the Times suggest that the original plan was to carry out three simultaneous bombings on three different buildings in Omaha, Phoenix, and Oklahoma. Now, when Wittenberg testified before the grand jury, she told them that the FBI had told her they were not interested in her account because she saw the rider truck and that McVeigh had not rented it by April 14th. Wittenberg replied that she did not care one way or another because she knew what she had seen and knew she was telling the truth. And if she's a grizzled old cook, she probably told him to piss off. Yeah, kiss her grits. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Wittenberg appeared to be irritated by the fact that the FBI took a week to get in contact with her, and she expressed some level of frustration when she was not taken seriously. I bet she was pissed. Yeah, she was. Of course she was. <sighs> that was a lot. That was a lot. And that's a, I mean, here's the thing. We've got a lot of information, and you may have to listen to this. You may have to pause it. Yeah. And go back and go, what the fuck did they just say? Yeah. Yeah. there's it, a lot. It is. 
Um, we'll take a look at April the 18th of 1995 was a Tuesday in Oklahoma City Center Post Office on 5th Street uh, between 9 and 10 a.m. Debbie uh, Nakanashi, Raymond Michael Kleesh, and Karen Reese were employees at the post office across from the street from the Murrah buildings, uh, or building. According to the witness interviews on the morning of the 18th, uh, Timothy McVeigh, John Doe number 2, visited the post office. The two spoke briefly to Debbie uh, Nakanashi and asked her uh, where they might find, get a federal job application. McVeigh did not speak during the encounter with John Doe number 2 doing all of the talking. I think John Doe number 2 liked to talk a lot. Yeah, he did. He about got yeah, punched he, in he the about, mouth. Yeah, he about got, he about got uh, isolated from the situation. Regarding John Doe number 2, Nakatashi... Uh, Nakanashi, sorry, uh, told the ABC News that he walked with a military bearing. He had a dark skin, uh, olive skin. It was obvious to me that the other man, uh, was uh, he was in control of the situation. He was the boss. In an interview with investigators, Kleesh uh, stated that John Doe number 2, the man who did the talking, was about 5'10", with dark hair, combed straight back, stocky build, and weighed approximately 200 pounds. Cleesh estimated that the man was probably in his late 30s. Another man, Cleesh said, never spoke a word, was six foot tall and slim, military top haircut. Uh, uh, Naganashi uh, was interviewed by S.A. Daniel Rasner and S.A. Michael, is that? Bayron's, I Bayron's, yeah, of FBI on April the 22nd of 1995 when uh, their memory was fresh. She was also interviewed by Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation and then frequently by the FBI the following months following the bombing, meeting multiple times and providing a description of a man she saw to the FBI sketch artist. Um, Naganashi uh, says that her interviews, I met, I met always with two men, always different set of men, four, five, six times. So she's seen them multiple times. Mm-hmm. I picked Mavey out of a photo lineup, and but I did admit... I had seen him on television, uh, which that kind of voids out anything that you that yeah. you tell the police officers. Um, then they asked about John Doe number two, the guy I spoke with. I told them that the guy uh, had a composite uh, sketch of my guy. That was not the con- that was not a composite spe- sketch of my guy at all. Uh, Naganashi said that the sketch of John Doe number two was not quite the man she saw. So they're already changing what he looks like. Um, he looked different in the drawing. The FBI sketch artist Gene Boyan interviewed Debbie Nakanashi for six hours to put together a sketch of a man uh, Cleesh and Reese had seen. Uh, Boylan said that Debbie was such a good eyewitness. I really believe her. Boyan uh, worked with Elliot's body shop employee Tom Kissinger um, to put together a more accurate sketch of the man he had seen with John Doe number one at Elliot's body shop. The sketch, aside from the profile of John Doe two with a hat on, was released to the media uh, and almost depicted depicted almost precisely the man uh, Nakanashi described to Boyan. When the FBI Weldon Kennedy uh, held a press conference, uh, the cl- clutching the sketch in his hand, Nakanashi uh, recognized the rendered. The, it was rendered instantly. My John Doe number two was the second sketch, and with the side view of the high cheekbones, that's my guy. That's the guy I saw. Naganashi appeared on uh, Good Morning America on 2001 uh, on a segment. Uh, Gene Boylan's John Doe number two profile sketch uh, was shown. Naganashi com- uh, commented 
there's a guy out there that looks exactly like John John Doe number two that helped blow up the mirror building and nobody's looking for him and nobody seems to care if he's found or prosecuted and that really bothers me. And again, if you take the time to bring this woman and sit down for a television interview on Good Morning America, there's something to it. Yes. Well, you got to think about this too and we go back with the Beaumont children, uh, the guy that abducted the Beaumont children from Australia. They have multiple eyewitnesses down to the T to what this man wore. One or two people kind of getting it right. It's, it's a 50-50. But if you have more, like multiple people, and we're talking maybe, what, six people right here. Yeah, right now we're up guy. to five Five. have seen him. Yeah. And we're not. Same same description. There are only two, one yeah. This is only two eyewitness accounts. Yeah. <laughs> we got five people. So on April 18th, 1995, at the Alfred P. Murrow building, approximately 4.45 p.m., Gary Rubsaman, I wonder if he rubs some in. What's he rubbing in? Was a security guard. jargons. Was a security guard working outside the Social Security office at the Murrow Federal Building. The day before the bombing, he saw something highly unusual that, in retrospect, appears to have been a, quote, dry run of the bombing carried out by the perpetrators. Get, uh, Rubsaman reported that on the afternoon before the bombing, around 4.45 p.m., he observed three individuals pull up in a yellow rider truck. They parked the truck, quote, dead center in front of the Murrah building, shut off the engine, and then exited the vehicle in a hurry. Rubsman described the encounter to McCurtain Gazette reporter J.D. Cash and Rocky Mountain News reporter Kevin Flynn, quote, there was either two or three men, one jumped out of the driver's side, and one or two out of the passenger side. The first Of his best friend's ride? Trying to holler at me? Sorry. <laughs> sorry. God dang it. I'm sorry. The fir- Well, see, when I typed that, I was thinking the same thing. I almost put it in there. but <laughs> It's, it's kind of eerie how is. our brains work. The first thing that struck me was how quickly they jumped out. Those guys were in a hurry. After about 15 minutes had passed and no one had entered the building with a delivery, Rubsman went back out front to check and saw that the rider truck was gone. Um, newsflash. If I'm a security guard at a federal building and three dinglings park a rider truck and jump out and run away, I'm pretty much letting everybody to get, know to get the fuck out of the building. And I'm not taking my eyes off of that no, truck. No. I'm not going to come back and say, well, 15 minutes passed and I didn't see anybody else. That thing gone. <laughs> what the hell, buddy? Yes. He recalled after the bombing that the yellow moving truck appeared like a rider rental truck because it was yellow. Duh. However, the rider logo was weathered and faded. Or painted over. So that's the first rider truck. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because think about it. If you've got 5,000 pounds of ammonium nitrate and diesel fuel in the back and you hit the wrong bone. You hit a fucking pothole, everybody's assholes puckering. It's like you shot Kenny in the face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're going home and digging out whatever that whatever the damn seat's made out of out of the crack of your ass. Is there a sign in my yard? <laughs> I know. I know. If they all would have, they, they all probably should have rolled rolled around with a lump of coal up their ass. And by the time that whole process was over, they'd have a nice big diamond to shit out in the next day. No doubt. Was this the truck with its faded logo the second rider truck that other witnesses observed between the dates of April tenth and April sixteenth? Sure, sounds like yeah. it. Yeah. And more than one, it's I, the, I, I witness account. It's the same truck that was spotted at Gary Lake and Dreamland Motel. Did he really observe a dry run for the bombing? And who were the three men he saw? Because he didn't come forward and say, hey, that was McVeigh. And- I, I, without a shadow of a doubt, feel like they took a truck, 
and they did a dry run with it. Just set it out there, see if it brew any suspicion. And it sat there for fifteen minutes. Yeah, yeah, which is plenty long enough to blow that damn building to smithereens. You look at April the nineteenth of nineteen ninety five on a Wednesday, Kingsman, Kansas, and a save a trip approximately between one thirty a.m. to two thirty a.m. Uh, Richard Sennett was the assistant manager of the Save a Trip convenience store in Kingsman, uh, Kansas at the day of the bombing and would encounter in early morning hours of April the 19th as he uh, serves as uh, one of the most compelling accounts with others involved the day of the bombing. A little after midnight between 1.30 and 2.30 a.m. on April the 19th of 1995, Senate observed a three-car convoy of a rider truck, a four-door sedan, and a brown truck in a parking lot at the Save Trip. Senate's encounter... Uh, began when the man started pumping gas into the rider truck, causing the fuel uh, control uh, fuel control console behind uh, the counter of the store to emit a tone which indicated the customer has engaged the gas pump. When Senate looked out uh, onto the lot, he saw the man with his back to him pumping the gas into the rider truck. At the time, he observed the rider truck was pulling a trailer with a huge fuel tank mounted to it. What? Um... <laughs> Are there no video cameras at any of these gas stations? Yeah, every fucking one of them. What happened to the tapes? Well, it's kind of like the videos from the Pentagon. There's what? only one. Or the or the videos from the hotel. Come on, man. Come on. Uh, Senate played close, close attention to the rider truck because it, it attached was a very large, uh, large central, central, uh, god damn it, <laughs> cylinder. <laughs> yeah, it was a round barrel. It was a round barrel shaped full of fuel mounted to, mounted to a tank mounted onto it. Uh, cylinder. Cylinder. I'm, I'm done. I'm not even talking about it. I don't even, I don't even care anymore. Yeah. Uh, unlike anything Note you'd yourself, ever seen don't before. Don't put cylindrical in the proper notes no more. Yeah, if you ask me what how to spell that word as a child in a spelling bee, there might have been. I can't say a school shooting. I probably would have swung on the teacher. Uh, <laughs> I'm stupid. I don't know. Um. He said the tank was mounted to the trailer, had to be about six feet wide, which is pretty damn big. Also large, uh, it barely fit on the back of the rider truck, so it was easily uh, held over with thousands of gallons of liquid. What? Um, no video. That's what it's, I just can't get past. There's no video of any of this. Uh, Senate said he could see a clear uh, colored liquid sloshing around in the large fuel tank as the convoy left the parking lot. Senate would reaccount this encounter uh, into great detail with OKC grand jury investigation uh, on the bombing. He would testify that the man referred to as John Doe 2 pumped the gas into the rider truck, and the truck driver entered the save trip uh, asking uh, for to use a restroom, where Senate declared that the rider truck driver to the rear of the store and would describe him to being about six foot tall, light colored hair, military looking haircut. That'd be McVeigh. That would be Timothy McVeigh. Um, while the driver was using the restroom, John Doe number two finished pumping the gas into the store, picked out a sandwich from the deli counter. I wonder if he got a drink. Uh, Senate heated the sandwich for John Doe number two in the microwave, and he probably said, don't go longer than 30 seconds. <laughs> this place is going up in a heap. Um, cut the microwave off. Cut off the microwave. Uh, everybody. <laughs> everybody cut it off. Uh, the sandwich finished heating the rider truck. Uh, driver came out of the restroom, approached the counter. John Doe number two paid for the sandwich, and the man who had used the restroom paid for the gas with unwashed hands. Um, <laughs> bring me back that hubcap key. <laughs> 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 uh, 
<laughs> Cindy said the man who pumped the gas and picked out a sandwich and paid for uh, paying in cash. Uh, the features matching the details of the John Doe number two that everybody else had had. A five seven five eight muscular football like uh, body player uh, body style with a weight one hundred eighty pounds. Dark hair parted on one side, brushed back. Uh, the sketch of John Doe number two was aired on the media on April the twentieth. Senate said he recognized immediately a depicting the man he had seen the night before. He told the Associate Press, uh, "The eyes were perfect. I recognized him right away." After both men exited the Saver trip together, Senate uh, watched as the two spoke animately and. Uh, another one outside the door before getting into the rider truck. Senate was left with the impression that the two men were arguing with one another uh, and testified that the taller of the two men was waving his arms around, kind of uh, getting the getting in the face of John Doe number two. Following, uh, following this, the pair got into the truck, John Doe number two uh, via the passenger side. As the rider truck began to exit the parking lot, Senate observed the four-door sedan and the brown pickup pull up alongside and behind the rider truck, so it's like a convoy. They're blocking it in. Um, uh, watched all three vehicles pull out on the Highway 54 together. The convoy took Senate by surprise. Uh, he was unaware the brown pickup and the four-door sedan had been in the lot uh, at that moment. Senate testified that the uh, car and the truck pulling up alongside the, uh, the rider was almost immediate, one after the other. And that caught me by surprise. I didn't even know that they were in the back of the building. Senate uh, did not get a good look at the inside of the sedan or the truck. Uh, and there's no account for how many people might've been in those vehicles. So the save a trip manager, uh, Kingsman, Kansas just located 35 miles from Wichita and about a half an hour's drive away from the highway. It's 175 miles North of Oklahoma city, which is about three hours away. Uh, this puts a convenience store at the location, uh, where the convoy could reach Oklahoma city between four and 6 AM Depending on how fast the combo was traveling, how many stops they made, Senate would relay that they had plenty of time to get there in an interview with a daily Oklahoman. Again, these are detailed descriptions. And they want us to believe Timothy McVeigh. By himself. By himself. From Gary Lake. Yeah. I mean, come on, dude. It's not even, it's not even possible. It's not even possible. So we get to April 19th, 1995, which is a Wednesday at the YMCA building on 125th Northwest 5th Street in Oklahoma City at about 8.02 a.m. Morris John Cooper, an employee of the nearby Kerr-McGee Oil Company, saw McVeigh and John Doe number 2 walking away from the 5th Street YMCA building on the morning of the bombing. Cooper observed both men running towards and getting into a yellow Mercury marquee parked in the Kerr-McGee's parking lot. Cooper recalls the time because he was late for work and looked at his watch right after seeing the two men at 8.02 a.m. Cooper called the FBI on April 21st to report what he had seen. He also suggested that FBI agents check the nearby security cameras at the public library and Southwestern Bell buildings, which they did. The FBI seized the surveillance camera footage from the Southwestern Bell building and all other surveillance camera footage in the area when cooper testified at the nichols trial prosecutors tried to challenge cooper's credibility telling the jurors that he never contacted the fbi however in 2001 the fbi released thousands of documents found to have been withheld from the defense team among those was an fbi lead sheet showing that morris cooper had indeed contacted the fbi just two days after the bombing relating to them what he saw that morning which was Timothy McVeigh and John Doe number two running away. 
Uh, all right, so the same morning at 8.30 a.m. at the intersection of Main and Robinson Street in Oklahoma City, at the time of the bombing, Kyle Hunt was a vice president at Bank of Oklahoma responsible for credit and collections and managing the bank's sale of real estate properties. Hunt and his wife were both respected members of the community and active in 4-H activities. Now, people in Georgia think, well, what the hell's 4-H got to do with it? I'm telling you something, 4-H out west in the Midwest is a big freaking deal. Yeah. Uh, my wife has a cousin who got a scholarship because she... Oh, straight up. Full ride to, to, mm-hmm. to school, yeah. Absolutely. And she didn't did it. She didn't get it milking goats. She did it making her own clothing. Yeah. yeah. All right. So oh. you, you take a look uh, at, the, at the time of the bomb and Kyle Hunt, the vice president... Is it, is it? We just went over that. Yeah, I'm right there where it says with these facts in mind. If you want to continue there, where second sentence. Oh, with these facts in mind, one must consider Hunt's account to be be credible and worthy of a careful consideration. On the morning of the bombing, Hunt was on his way back from the BOK building uh, on Kerr Avenue to meet with his attorney. Uh, the meeting scheduled for 8:30 a.m. He was running a little late, and Hunt said he just uh, exited the interstate uh, Interstate 40 into downtown Oklahoma City. When he had an unusual encounter, which remains etched in his memory forever, as Hunt was driving through downtown, about four blocks from his mur- from the murder building, he encountered McVeigh and three other individuals. Three other individuals. Hunt reported uh, that he was driving east on Main Street. He approached the spot, the the spotlight, the stoplight, where he had already stopped ahead in the lane adjacent to him. There was a rider truck followed closely by a four door s- sedan driven by McVeigh. Hunt said that at 8.30, when his account, when the encounter happened, um, he began checking his watch uh, because he knew he was late for his appointment. As Hunt pulled away, slowly passed the sedan and came to a stop at the next lot, the rider truck, he got a good look at the sedan's driver. Hunt was reported uh, that the sedan was driven by a man with an angular face and a short military haircut, and there was two men, two men inside, one in the passenger seat and the other one in the back seat. One of the men in the sedan had long, dark hair. Okay. Hunt will recall uh, face, uh, the driver's face vividly because the two men made eye contact as Hunt passed the Mercury. Hunt said, as I pulled closer, the driver of the sedan, McVeigh, warned me off. I got an icy, cold, go-to-hell look from this young man and that uh, now I know is Timothy McVeigh. Hunt is positive that the driver was McVeigh, later saying it was un- unnerving uh, and I just looked at the driver and gave him uh, f- the fixed features on his face. Uh, is 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 it fixed in my mind? Uh, Hunt saw McVeigh on television two days later when McVeigh was immediately recognized McVeigh's face uh, as a driver uh, who had chillingly glared at him in the traffic at the traffic stop. Um, a day or two afterward, Hunt began visiting at home by his friends, uh, who was a police officer, and Hunt recounted with them what he had seen. The friend advised him to contact authorities, and, uh, of course, the FBI would uh, interview Hunt three times regarding what he had saw. Hunt also recounted that he saw uh, two grand jury uh, petitioner, Glenn Wilburn, in a tape-recorded interview. Um, wait, what did I, did I skip on? No, no, no. Uh, Basically, he tells the FBI three times what he saw, and then he's interviewed by a grand jury uh, investigator who tape-records what he saw. He uh, would also testify to the grand jury uh, and panel to investigate the bombing. Hunt's accounts of the story uh, never wavered and to this day remains compelling and credible. Who were the other men with Timothy McVeigh is the big question. 
if McVeigh was driving that Mercury, then who's driving the Ryder truck? Uh, and by Hunt's accounts, it puts four men in the convoy. Uh, accidentally, the same number of people observed by Richard Senate hours earlier uh, as the convoy stopped at Senate Save a Trip uh, in Kingsman, Kansas. I mean, that's back-to-back corroborated stories of the same men. And they still want you to believe Lone Wolf that he did it all alone, all by himself. No. Absolutely not. So April 19th, 1995, same day. Now we're looking at 9 o'clock to 9.02 a.m. on 5th Street, headed eastbound. Rodney Johnson was a driver for Rolling In Catering in Oklahoma City at the time of the bombing. On the morning of the bombing, Johnson traveled eastbound on 5th Street, making his way to Cox Tomato in the Bricktown area of downtown Oklahoma City. This morning commute took Johnson past the Murrah Building, usually between 8 and 9 a.m. It has been established that Johnson probably passed the Murrah Building around 9 a.m. His truck had just passed the Murrah Building when it was impacted by debris at 9.02 when the bomb exploded. Man. He's lucky to be alive. He's a lucky dude, yeah. Just 30 to 60 seconds before Johnson felt the bomb go off, he observed two men on foot hurrying away from the mirror building. The pair ran into 5th Street and in front of the catering truck. Johnson had to brake his vehicle and let the man pass in front of him, and in doing so, got a good look at both suspects. Johnson contacted the FBI on the night of the bombing about what he had seen and was interviewed by the FBI on April 21st by Special Agent John Hippard. Johnson described the taller man who ran in front of his catering truck as approximately six foot to six foot one, late twenties, early thirties, short sandy blonde hair, crew cut, wearing a white t-shirt. When shown a composite sketch of John Doe number one by the FBI, Johnson said it highly resembled the man. Remember, John Doe number one is McVeigh. Right. On April twenty second, when Johnson saw McVeigh's arrest on television, he called FBI Special Agent John Hippard and told him that McVeigh was a man he saw. The man Johnson saw with McVeigh the morning of the bombing was described to the FBI as being, quote, stocky, about five foot eight, black hair, wearing blue jeans, and a dark colored jacket, end quote. Johnson did not get a good look at the second man as he did McVeigh, who passed closer to Johnson's truck than the second man who followed. Johnson would later tell reporters about what he saw, quote, I saw two individuals, Timothy McVeigh and John Doe number two, cross fifth three just minutes before the blast. I remember the rider truck parked against the building. I was making a move from the first lane of 5th Street to the next lane when I noticed two individuals, one of them, Timothy McVeigh, and one of them, John Doe number 2, end quote. Now, Johnson is adamant that he saw McVeigh with another man. In television news footage broadcast after the bombing, Johnson said, quote, I know for a fact Timothy McVeigh was with another individual on the morning of April 19th, right before the bombing. Ultimately, what the witness statements do is confirm that there was at least one other accomplice with McVeigh. The accounts of the Elliott's Body Shop employees mm-hmm. uniformly described an accomplice. The corroborating testimonies from the witnesses that we've discussed, Barbara Wittenberg, Debbie Nakanashi, Guy Rubisman, Richard Snett, Morris Co- Cooper, Kyle Hunt, and Rodney Johnson also support this second suspect's existence. That's seven people. Seven people with a spot on same story, same exact uh, identity of of, of the two people. Seven. Yeah. The critical thing to remember about these witness accounts is that they are not outliers or otherwise aberrations. In large part, all of the witness accounts are corroborative. These people all saw just about the same yes. thing. And and when you have it, it's like we said, you got, you got two or three people, okay, maybe. But you've got 
multiple people that seen the exact, and they ID them to a T. You got seven people yep. spread out over, prop, I would say, roughly within 200 miles of each other. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're talking within two miles, eh, yeah, you might could throw that away. Yeah. But within 200 miles, you see the same people. Same vehicles, same people. Same descriptions. Yeah. Yeah. So consider this. Not a single witness who saw McVeigh at the crime scene was called to testify at the trial. Imagine how powerful it would have been for the prosecutors if they could have put someone on the witness stand who would point to Timothy McVeigh and say, quote, it's him, I saw him, I'm sure of it, end quote. Why didn't prosecutors go for the kill? There is a straightforward reason that none of these witnesses ever testified at trial. Every single one of them would have also said, quote, he had another guy with him, another man was sitting next to him in the truck, end quote. They saw too much. The other man, John Doe number 2, could not be easily accounted for by the prosecution. In fact, he wasn't explained at all. He, was an after, he wasn't even an afterthought. They, nobody was talking about this guy. Mm-mm. Now, here's the kicker. Later... The FBI's first on-scene commander of the Oklahoma City bombing investigation wrote a book. In his book, Weldon Kennedy wrote this, quote, This was going to be a case largely built from forensic evidence since there was no eyewitnesses, end quote. No eyewitnesses? I will leave it up to the reader to determine why Kennedy wrote that in his book and whether Kennedy was telling the truth when he wrote it. Yeah. So what, what, what's the whole reason behind steering everybody away from these other people? What's the significance of them pinning every single thing on McVeigh as a lone wolf? Like, what? what is the reason? Like, why? I don't know. And here's the thing. Let's take a look at that area, though, and take a look who's in charge in that area. I mean, dude, walks like a duck. Quacks like a duck. Swims like a duck. I'd be a duck. It's a fucking duck. All right, so I know this is long-winded, y'all, and this is a long episode, but there is a ton of information. Okay, so we've given you the eyewitness accounts, but there's also FBI reports that come out, and these are dated. There's about seven or eight of them. The first one is in uh, March of 94. Andreas Strassmeyer claimed to have met McVeigh that month at a gun show. Okay, fast forward to September between uh, September 12th and 13th of 94, McVeigh rented a room at the LCS de Motel near El Haim City, where Strassmeyer is the head of security. Hmm. April 14th of 95, a guest at the Dreamland Motel in Junction City, Kansas, saw a man who resembled John Doe number 2 near McVeigh's room. The next day, a man delivering pizza to McVeigh's room at the Dreamland said he gave the pizza to a man that was neither McVeigh or John Doe number 2. So now you got three men. Yep. According to two Dreamland guests at about 1 a.m., a man stuck his head out of the room rented to McVeigh. That man resembled John num- Doe number two. All right, so the next day, we're talking about pizzas delivered on the 15th. They see a man stick his head out at 1 a.m. on the 16th. On the 17th, a white supremacist member in Utah places the first of a series of phone calls over the next two days to the Oklahoma City Radisson Inn. A guest at the Dreamland sees the driver, who is not McVeigh of the rider truck, get out of the truck and walk into the motel office. The man resembled John Doe number 2, according to the guest. At 9 p.m., a man at a convenience store in Harrington saw McVeigh and a man who, quote, fit the general description, end quote, of John Doe number 2. April 18th, two men saw McVeigh and John Doe number 2 park a rider truck in, far, in front fart, in front of a Hardee's in <laughs> Well, Jones they were at Hardee's, so I'm sure that was probably going on after they ate. <laughs> 
At 8 a.m., the couple that owned the Santa Fe Trail Diner in Harrington say they saw McVeigh Nichols and a third man have breakfast in the restaurant. Third man, John Doe number two. Witnesses see rider truck and a blue or brown pickup truck at Gary Lake around 9 to 10 a.m. 7 p.m., the owners of the steakhouse in Perry, Oklahoma, see McVeigh and a, quote, stocky companion eat in their restaurant. They also notice a rider truck parked in the parking lot. Then you get to April 19th, a surveillance camera south of Wichita films a rider truck with two men in it and a dark pickup following closely behind. Two men, including McVeigh, reportedly make an early morning stop for coffee in Mulhall, Oklahoma, just off I-35. At 8.30 a.m., according to the employee of an Oklahoma City tire store, two men driving a rider truck stopped and asked directions to Northwest 5th Street in Harvey, where the building's at. McVeigh was the driver and the other man with a dark complexion and wore a baseball cap. Who's the long-haired guy? Mm-hmm. I have no idea. It's not military. He's not U.S. military. Hey, it's winner, a, winner, chicken. Yeah, he's not dinner. U.S. He's not U.S. military. No. Yeah. All right. So we get into, and this is an odd post. Like this is extremely crazy. So this is from a Democratic forum. So you take it for what it's worth. Oh boy. So Timothy McVeigh, Terry Nichols. Jose, Joey Leon, and Leon's uncle, Mr. Kentop, banded together to test the directional blast of the bombs. I think this is where the soup cans come in. Here we go. Then McVeigh, Nichols, and Leon built the bomb at Gary Lake, Kansas. Then Joey drove the bomb to Oklahoma City and blew up the building. They made sure that they bombed the building during business hours to make sure that there was a large number of people killed. Through careful planning and without guns, they succeeded in a mass casualty bombing. Joey Leon is said to have gotten away with it after diverting FBI agents away from Kingman, Arizona with his, quote, Sons of the Gestapo derailing of an Amtrak train, Sunset Limited, near Hyder, Arizona, also near Palo Verde, Arizona, and near Gila Bend, Arizona. Leon fled to his parents' home in Anaheim, California, after that. Joey Leon, who had a $2 million reward on him, was never caught, so he continued terrorism against America. Here's the crazy part of this post. These terrorists were drawn together when they joined Sammy Gravano's. Yes, the The bull. The bull neo-Nazi narcotics cartel in Arizona. This was a marriage in hell that put together like-minded drug addict crazies. A few days after the Murrah building, I was talking it over with Joey and found out that they had to ad-lib to get the job done. The problem was when Joey lit the fuse inside the cab of the truck, but he said that the fuse went out as it's going from the cab into the uh, back. So he had to get out, open the back of the truck and relight the fuse so joey's mind was not wiped out by drugs that he couldn't think of a way to fix the problem if he was a cracked out idiot he would just run yeah joey did the bombing for bragging rights and he bragged to me about bombing the murrah building with his best friend timothy mcveigh even before the murrah building he used to talk about mcveigh a lot the court ignored all dozen witnesses all with the same info recognizing Leon's white hat with its purple flame pattern and made up a fairy tale that McVeigh was the lone bomber. In early 1995, Tulsa ATF agents were eagerly, eagerly, eagerly preparing for a highly anticipated raid on Elohim City and the arrest of Andy the German. Then suddenly, those plans dramatically and suddenly halted. The abrupt about-face was recorded in a report of investigation for February of 1995. On February 22nd, 
this agent met with Oklahoma Highway Patrol co- trooper Ken Stafford, the pilot who had flown the AF or the ATF team on the February 7th aerial reconnaissance over El Huim to exchange certain information regarding the investigation. Trooper Stafford indicated that the FBI also had an ongoing investigation in El Huim. Near panic gripped federal law enforcement agencies in Tulsa, an extraordinary meeting took place later the day between the ATF resident agent in charge, David Roberts, and the local U.S. attorney, Steve Lewis. This meeting violated strict bureaucratic protocol, whereby Lewis would normally not have consented to meet with a lowly resident agent in charge and would have met only with Roberts' Dallas-based regional ATF boss. The left hand and the right hand of the federal law enforcement targeting Elohim City finally became aware of each other's investigation, and Lewis's meeting with Roberts had one immediate and three follow-up consequences. First, ATF terminated its investigation and planned arrest of Strassmeyer. Second, the ATF terminated Confidential Informant 183, the Tulsa debutante, as a paid confidential informant, and they think that's that lady that we read the description about. Mm -hmm. They think that she is Confidential Informant 183. The ATF terminated its investigation of the White Aryan Resistance and Elohim City. The FBI continued to investigate Elohim City unimpeded by the ATF. Now, in September of 2001, six years after the bombing, David Roberts told CBS 60 Minutes producer Mary Mapes in a not-for-record telephone call the following information. The Oklahoma City bombers came out of Elohim City. The FBI had a snitch in the middle of the bombing conspiracy. The FBI took over sole investigation of Elohim City to protect its snitch basically saving Strassmeyer's ass and the FBI. Wow. Two days later, after the bombing, a joint FBI-ATF team interviewed the confidential informant 183, and it's worth quoting the FBI report of this interview at some length, including intentional misspellings. We don't have to read the whole thing, but basically I'll summarize it. They know for a fact, and they do finally say in the thing, that Carol is CI-183. And she's telling them about what's about to happen. And she tells them that Strassmeyer had mentioned three specific buildings, not just the Murrah building. Now, it comes down to later in that interview with her that they realize that if they send her back, she's a dead woman. Yeah, she's done. Then the Bureau takes Strassmeyer and sends his ass back to Germany, and the U.S. Department of State Counterism Division issued a, quote, protective intelligence bulletin making Strassmeyer ineligible for a return to the U.S. in case someone like a congressional committee might want to interview him. So they took him completely out of the equation, and they left him where he could, he's, he's untouchable. And unquestionable. God, man, it's so much. It is a ton, man. All right, so we get into, you know, we kind of touched on this. There were four cameras in four locations that went blank at the same time at the Murrah building. The FBI claims the security cameras did not record just prior to the blast or during the blast because, quote, they had run out of tape or the tape was being replaced. What's interesting is... It mysteriously started recording exactly one minute after the bomb went off. Let's talk about what other tapes went missing. You got Jeffrey Epstein's tapes went missing. 
I got a feeling uh, Glanes is going to go Glanes missing. Glanes is about to go missing. <laughs> we, we're predicting the future at this point with that. So um, it's just convenient that all these videotapes go missing. Now, here is eyeballs deep. David Paul Hammer, who shared a cell adjacent to McVeigh in the Terre Haute's death row, offers his own theory. They were just informants. They were criminals committing criminal acts, yes. sometimes apparently while in the capacity as informants. That shit happens all the time. All the time. Members of the ARA working in groups were responsible for at least, at least robbing 22 banks in seven different states from January 94 to December 95. They stole at least $250,000 during the robberies. There's your financial tie. Yep. Hammer stated that whenever he suggested to McVeigh that he had been set up as a patsy, McVeigh would get pissed at him. McVeigh revealed that he was handed $50,000 to begin his mission hobnobbing with other agents and informants at at militia meetings and gun shows. When he penetrated the Elohim City, the joke was there were more co-intelligent agents than real militia, so much that it was known as Alphabet City, not Elohim City. So everybody he's talking to is pretty much somebody that's – so they know what he's doing. Yeah. They they know what's going on. McVeigh commented to Hammer on his bomb assembling, drug dealing, and bank robberies. Quote, the feds are like Keystone cops. They can't do shit unless they have some informant doing their job for them. I was all across the country doing these jobs. End quote. McVeigh thought and uh, that Strassmeyer was working for some, quote, other entity. Strassmeyer was a very unusual character. He had joined the German army and after seven years became a lieutenant in the Panzer Grenadiers. And they go on about how he worked for the FBI and he, you know, like we said, he got back to Germany right after the bombing. McVeigh purchased, quote, a bulk load of meth from Strassmeyer in Elohim City and distributed it to expand his criminal network and use some personally. A number of these idiots were speed freaks. The people McVeigh tried to recruit were little more than a criminal gang posing as military patriot groups. Quote, these guys were, for the most part, lifetime fuck-ups, not trained and disciplined soldiers ready for action anytime or anywhere, McVeigh said. They seemed to be a lot of talkers. McVeigh's evaluation of the AR members were very different. Quote, these guys, even Langan, were real disciplined. Ask yourself this, how did they get that way? Practice. Mm -hmm. So... I don't know, man. This just goes on and on and on, and we're still nine pages away from the end. But according to McVeigh, the rider moving truck seen by witnesses at the state park in Kansas was the decoy. Yep. The truck was purposely placed there in plain sight, and McVeigh said that Brescia drove the truck from Tulsa to Junction City. Now, we'll wrap this big thing up with a bow about the bomb. And we'll start this off with Dr. Samuel T. Cohen, who just happens to be a nuclear physicist. Oh, is that all? That's it. I mean, he's just a physicist. He knows a little something about something. Quote, I believe that the demolition charges in the Murrah building that were placed inside at key concrete columns did the primary damage. It would have been absolutely impossible and against the laws of nature for a truck full of fertilizer and oil, no matter how much was used to bring down that building. I agree. I agree. I think that you can't. The bomb force would be like left, right, forward, backward. Right. And I had seen a thing. So everything's not completely directed in one direction. You would have had to reinforce that 
truck the side away from the building to directionally blast it. Right. And that truck would have been leaning. But you're talking about probably five, three quarter inch. But you're talking about five thousand pounds and of explosives. Down nine. You're not putting uh you're not putting enough reinforcement over there without flipping the truck over, like you just said. There's no way to do that. And for you to bring down that that building the way they say it happened with the truck, you would have to drive that son of a bitch in the lobby. Yes, underneath it. You'd have to be underneath it. Which is exactly what was there was it was bombs underneath it. Um planted, I think. Well, McVeigh learned from Someone he called the major that other members of an elite unit had installed C4 explosives inside the Murrayfielder Federal Building in order to ensure maximum damage. Mm-hmm. And it goes on to say, "We're talking about how many square mile square miles? What, what's our radius? I don't know, but for you to damage 14, 14 other buildings to where they had to be demolished, demolished. there's no way a five incinerated cars. Yeah, incinerated them, not just." Burnt. Yeah, not just messing up the paint job. We're talking about incinerating. The aluminum rolled down the street, people. Yeah. Do you know how hot it has got to be to melt aluminum? (laughs) Okay, so the bomb was, or what is becoming more obvious, is that federal investigators went off track very early on, and nowhere is this more blatantly obvious than in the claim that the truck bomb brought down the building. Kate McCauley, executive director of Key's Oklahoma Bombing Investigation Committee, recently told the New American Magazine, quote, science and forensic evidence overwhelmingly contradict this claim. However, aside from your magazine, no one in the media or the government has really done the hard work of explaining and exposing this travesty. What we have been seeing for three years is science versus silence. Yep. The implications are profound. If internal charges were, in fact, used, it would have been impossible for McVeigh to have carried out the operation on his own. As the government contends, more hands and much more sophisticated expertise would have been required. It's even, way above McVeigh's pay grade. Even more perturbing is the charge by experts that evidence of demolition charges on the building's columns would have been unmistakable to forensic investigators. Thus... The extraordinary rush to blow up the crime scene and bury the evidence before it could be subjected to independent examination is in itself strong evidence of a Mm cover-up. The earliest and most compelling challenge to the long bomb, long bomber theory came from Brigadier General Benton K. Parton, United States Air Force, retired. He may know something. Yeah. He is an expert with sterling credentials and has a distinguished military career. On May 18th of 1995, one month after the bombing, General Parton delivered a preliminary detailed analysis of the event to members of Congress. Quote, from all the evidence I have seen in published material, I can say with a high level of confidence that the damage pattern on the reinforced concrete superstructure could not possibly have been attained from the single truck bomb without supplementing demolition charges at some of the reinforced column bases, end quote. Yep. In that report... And in the detailed study, which he released on July 13, 1995, General Parton eviscerated the prosecution's lone bob thesis with a host of findings from the forensic evidence indicating that demolition charges were certainly used inside the building. Since that time, a mountain of evidence, documents, records, eyewitness testimony, and authoritative support have accumulated to fortify the general's thesis, making the stubborn adherence of government officials and journalists to the lone bomb scenario truly incredible. I mean, that's it in a nutshell. I mean, you got an expert sitting there telling you there's no way possible 
this building was taken down with this truck. No way possible that there had to be other devices in place to bring this building down the way that it came down. It yeah, caused mass destruction around it. You've got world-renowned physicists and an assortment of scientists, engineers, and explosive experts who concurred that internal charges must have been used. A series of Air Force test blasts on concrete structures corroborating General Parton's main contention that air blast from a truck bomb outside of the building could not possibly account for the pattern and magnitude of the damage to the structure. A study by FEMA acknowledges that a truck bomb of 4,800 pounds of ANFO, which is what was used, mm-hmm would have been insufficient to cause the destruction experienced at the building. Two eyewitnesses inside the building who attest that they observed bomb squad personnel removing undetonated explosive devices from the building after the blast. A rescue worker attests that she heard an an ATF agent state that he had found an undetonated explosive device in the building. Recently released government Communiques and radio transmission logs indicating that undetonated devices have been found in the building during the early rescue efforts. Recordings of real-time live television news broadcasts reporting official confirmations of multiple unexploded devices inside the building. Early statements from government officials and terrorism bombing experts before the official line was laid down that the explosives used were clearly very sophisticated, indicating it was the work of a group highly knowledgeable in explosive techniques. Five survivors of the blast who attest that they saw three men in the parking garage with wires, tools, and what appeared to be building plans several days before the bombing. Military personnel who reported they saw McVeigh or John Doe number two inside the building but were threatened with court martial if they mentioned it. It's the same thing with the World Trade Center. Uh, the first time they tried to take it down, remember they had the, they had the uh, moving vans in there with explosives and they tried to put them by the concrete pillars and bring the whole building down at the time. It's almost eerily similar to what this is as far as um, with the explosives, the way they're set up. All right. Now we get into General Parton's actual uh, thesis and I'll hit the high points and then we'll wrap this thing up. Gotcha. Blast through air is a terrible in efficient coupling mechanism against heavily reinforced concrete beams and columns. Blast wave energy drops dramatically when traveling through air, initially falling off more rapidly than an inverse function of the distance cubed. A lot of science there. It is. Using the official estimate of 4,800 pounds of ANFO would yield a maximum pressure of explosion about one half million pounds per square inch at the destination site. But by the time the blast wave traveled through the air to the nearest building columns, it would have dropped off to 375 pounds of pressure per square inch. And by the time it reached the nearest column in the second row of columns, it would have been down to 27 or 38 PSI. No way you're... Nothing's coming down with that. No, the compressive yield strength of concrete is around 3,500 pounds per square inch, far above anything exerted by the truck bomb blast. blast. The asymptote... Asymmetrical. Thank you. Damage to the building, basically the off-center bite, because it's not dead center, mm-hmm. presents another insuperable problem for the official scenario, requiring that the blast wave leave standing columns that were closer to the explosion while taking out columns that were farther away. Inherent in the official scenario is absurd claim that the truck blast was sufficiently strong to collapse huge columns and beams, but not strong enough to knock down sheetrock, furring strips, and other light fragile materials. Examination of photographic evidence shows clearly that the common failures 
I'm sorry, that the column failures were smooth and localized, as would be expected with cutting charges, not jagged, as would have been the case if it had been shattered by a air blast. The persuasive cohesiveness of his analysis, coupled with his outstanding stature and experience in the field of military ordnance, explosives, and blast effects, should have earned General Parton's thesis a respectable hearing, but it was dismissed out of hand and ridiculed by the same officials and media-appointed, quote, experts who have propagated a continuous string of absurdities to explain away the avalanche of contradictions and inconsistencies in the official story. Kind of like all these medical uh, experts we have nowadays getting us through a pandemic. Now, I have in our notes the actual radio traffic. We won't bore you with that. It just goes on to officially tell you this was not just a damn one guy and a bomb and a truck and a truck bomb. And the thing is, they said people on the ground after the bomb said they smelt sulfur in the air, which is very prevalent and reminiscent of daisy cutter bombs. You know, I can we can go on probably for another thirty minutes telling you about other eyewitnesses. There may have been a mercury bomb used, which would greatly... Definitely, definitely damage the building. Yeah, and, and the thing is, there's people in other buildings where the glass is shattered, not across the street. You're talking about a block over, the glass is blown out of the entire building. Mm-hmm. That's not coming... From that area, from oh. that truck. There's no way. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, this is a ton of information. This is an extremely long episode, but I felt like we, you wanted, our listeners wanted us to dive deep into this. And I think we have. I mean, we could go a lot deeper and drag this thing on and on, and I can give you more and more evidence of basically what you already know. Mm-hmm. That truck bomb didn't do it. So here's what we know. Timothy, Timothy McVeigh was working with at least four other people, four other people that we know of. Minimum. Minimum of four. Um, that That bomb in that truck was not big enough to cause the damage that it caused. No, because if you, and like you said, if you go back to the first World Trade Center bombing, it damaged one column, that was and that's it. inside the that parking garage. That was inside garage. the parking garage. So that's a localized explosion. Yep. yep, You're talking about on the street, and just as much pressure and explosion are, is going out left, right, north, south, than into, like we said, you would have had to shield that truck so much that it would have tipped over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you couldn't have drove it from A to B. Mm-mm. Yeah, the other thing too, uh, the the blast wasn't wasn't the what am I trying to say? The blast wasn't localized for one direction. That's what we're talking about. Um, it, it, none of it makes sense. I mean, from from the from the eyewitness accounts to uh, John Doe number two, and the sketch being changed to where it's not any looks anything like what they, what seven other people said this guy looked like. Uh, to video camera or film disappearing, uh, disappearing, surveillance films disappearing. Uh, to people that's got death threats. To people that, that poor lady that runs a motel in a damn diner in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, won't do interviews because yeah. she's terrified. I, yeah, she should be. Yeah. She should be scared to damn death. I probably would have closed up shop and moved went to into witness protection. Yeah, for real. So no, I think I think there's a lot to be said. Whether or not, uh, let's just throw out the fact that all the eyewitness accounts throw out everything else. 
Look at the bomb itself. That bomb should have created a crater on that street and proportionally destroyed the building across the street as it did. That's the other thing. If that thing is that powerful to take that building down, why was there not a giant crater blue in the ground? Why? Why? Because you still have that com- that compression. If it's if it's big enough to blow a building down like that, then the force sure is going sh- down the force and is out. going down and out. So you know and up. So and there's fourteen bill fourteen buildings. I can't get over the fourteen yeah, buildings that yeah. they had demolished. Structural damage. They had. I mean, it's not busted windows. It's not knocked paint off. It's not like siding or roofing or anything like that knocked away. It had. Had such structural damage, they had to be demoed. They had to tear them down. Not Um, often. And then with the general saying that as you move away from the blast, as it reaches that first column, it's only at 28 to 32 psi. Yeah, hell, you can get that with a potato gun. I can pee that hard. Some days. (laughs) Some days. Well, when I was 20, my prostate was a little stronger. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, I hope everybody takes this in. Uh, Whatever we say. And uh, do your research yourself. Yeah, I mean, all the stuff that we have told y'all is out there. Yep. The key to it, and I figured out how to search, is you have to do OKC Bombing plus John Doe number two. You get all that information. Mm -hmm. OKC Bombing and uh, Demolition Charges. It's out there. Even on Google, it's out there. They haven't banned that from you guys yet, so you can still research it. That's our biggest thing. Until you get too smart for it. We give you the information we found. You are more than welcome to go out there and fact check us. I'm sure we got something wrong. I'm sure. I mean, I know I've said uh, everybody everybody under the sun's name wrong probably. So, But, but ladies and gentlemen, I really enjoyed this deep dive. I, me I, too. I, me too. I, I texted you last night at almost midnight. I was like, man, I got 28 pages. Yeah. I hope you're ready. I was like, holy shit. <laughs> but no, I, I enjoyed it. I did. I enjoyed uh, bringing these things to light and... Um, I hope we're not putting ourselves in danger. Well, the so, FBI man parked out front across the street. Oh, it's just Novella's Flowers is what it says. <laughs> it's a flower truck. So. From uh, Elohim City. <laughs> yeah. It's got an OKC tag on it. So, All right, everybody. Uh, that's going to do it for this episode. Uh, again, please uh, reach out to us if you if there's something, another direction you want us to go in on any of these. Uh, and if you want us to stop doing these and you're the government, just tell us. You ain't got to take action against us. We'll just be like... We'll just start Hey, that long series, man, it just didn't go over too well. We're done. We'll talk about Yellowstone and beef. (laughs) It's what's for dinner. (laughs) All right, man. Y'all take care.